Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all his other health and medical experiences. For the past couple weeks, we've been doing some different episodes. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Ari interviewed me, and then last week we interviewed his parents, which was really a pretty fun episode. I really liked that one, and I hope lots of people get a chance to listen to it. Yeah. But that means that we've taken a bit of a break from the story that we were telling. <laughs> right. So I think that probably we need to get back into it for this episode. Yes. When last we left ourselves, uh, <laughs> you had just proposed to me. It was I 2009. Had. And I think that we should just pick up from there. So I think maybe you should describe for the podcast what our 2009 was like. Okay, yeah. So 2009 was... The second half of your first year of law school, your 1L year, and there was a lot of stuff going on related to that. By that point, I had pretty much settled into a really solid home dialysis routine. I was dialyzing six days a week in the afternoons when you got home from class. We were exploring the city like we've discussed. All that was smooth sailing. I was starting to look into some way that maybe I could take a few classes at a time. I was getting a little bit antsy. I was feeling pretty good, and I was feeling like I would like to finish my degree if right, possible. You said a few classes at a time to clarify part-time college classes. Right. I wanted to go back to college part-time. So I was looking at various options in our area, and we were also preparing to go somewhere for the summer initially, because one of the things that happens when you are a law student is that you do summer internships, which I think you can talk about better than I can. Right. So you spend the school year as a law student, and then you are expected to spend your summers doing work as a legal intern, either with a big law firm, that's what most people do, and they go to the firms and they are law clerks or legal interns, and that's a sort of special program that the firms have to train you on the job as opposed to in a classroom setting to do legal work, and you can make money if you're working at a law firm as an employee. Or you can do what I did, which was public interest law, so doing nonprofit work. One of the awesome things that Columbia does is it gave students a small stipend over the summer if you wanted to do nonprofit legal work. And so I was interested in doing human rights work or social justice initiatives. Before coming to law school, I had been a legal assistant at an immigration law firm. I had volunteered at the ACLU. So I was looking to do similar stuff. And I think also because we were really excited about you being stable on dialysis, you yeah. having a certain measure of health, that we wanted an adventure. I definitely wanted an adventure. Um, one of the things is in the big public interest office at Columbia. They have a giant map on it with pins in it. Here's where all of our students <laughs> went to do work this summer. And I I wanted to be a pin somewhere far away on that map. That yeah. was my big dream. So I had applied to a lot of places internationally. I was ready to go out and have an adventure. And the people there really worked with me because I said, I want to go out and have the craziest adventure that I can. By the way, my fiance has severe health complications and we need to be at a place where he can do dialysis and never that far from a hospital. <laughs> right. So that process took a really long time. We kept thinking, well, we'll surely we'll know by February. No. Well, maybe we'll know by March. No. Well, hopefully by April. And I don't remember when it was. It was probably April. April or March. Or yeah. 
Yeah. I heard back from a place in Australia that they wanted me to come and do prison reform work in Sydney. And I was so excited. Yeah, it sounded awesome. Um, we had never been to Australia individually or together, obviously. And um, we thought that would be really cool. And so once we knew it was Australia, then sort of that ball was passed over to me because you were working heavily and heavily and working towards end of 1L final exams and trying to get all the other things prepared to go do the law stuff in Australia. And so I started looking at housing situations and talking to the, uh, the Australians about dialysis in New South Wales, in Sydney. Yeah, the interesting thing is that in Australia, the blood goes the other way. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> but what is funny to me about that is that many, many years ago, I had used AOL Instant Messenger, AIM, for a number of years to stay in touch with people and especially as friends and former students spread out across the country. And you could set custom away messages. And so I had one for when I was on dialysis. I had several because I got bored and wanted new ones. And one of them was, in Australia, does dialysis go the other way? And then here it was many years later, and I was kind of amused. Well, now I'll find out. But of course, you know, it doesn't. So this was an interesting thing, too, because we had gotten used to Home Hemo. Home Hemo was great. We love Home Hemo. Home Hemo is only available in the United States, in the continental United States. Alaska's on a continent, but you know what we mean. So I was looking at doing in-center dialysis in a foreign country. And so I was talking to them, not by phone usually, because they're in the Southern Hemisphere, and I think also the Eastern Hemisphere, and we were in New York, we were almost directly across the globe from one another. So it was a lot of email conversations that took a long, long time because I would get up in the morning and have an email waiting for me. And I'd be like, oh, great. And then I would email them. And then if I had gotten up early enough and got the email out the door fast enough, they might get it before they closed and went home for the day. And so it was like at the very end of my day, at the very beginning of my day, I might have an email. And I think there was one time where we managed to have an email exchange where I got to send two emails in a day because enough time had passed that somebody could sleep in between. It was a very slow process, but they were very friendly. They had lots of good advice about where to stay so that I could just walk or maybe take public transportation. I stared and stared and looked at maps and got out rulers and things to see how far a walk or transportation would be for getting to and from dialysis three times a week to some apartment. And so I was looking into all that. I was starting to be in touch with rental people. That was a little bit trickier because, and I don't know if this is typical or if it was just the websites and things I was using, but a lot of those situations were like, rent a week in advance. And we were going, uh, but we're coming from far away. <laughs> but it, so it was a little bit tricky, but we were working on it. We were doing the whole thing and having a lot of good contact. And I was slowly getting that kind of dialed in, having 
papers sent back and forth, mostly electronically. My doctors had connected, and we were getting it all done as the date approached. And I should say that the date, if I remember correctly, that we were going to fly to Sydney was, let's say, three, four days after our wedding. Right. I think we were going to get married on May 24th, and then I think leave May 29th for Australia. That sounds right. And you were doing all the research to get our housing set up in Australia. Meanwhile, you can't just leave your expensive apartment in New York unoccupied for months, or at least we could not afford to do that, paying rent both in Sydney and in New York. No. So we had advertised on the Columbia Student Housing Network to sublease our apartment for the summer. We'd found a group of nice-seeming girl roommates who were all going to share our apartment for the summer and sublease it from us so that we could afford to keep it while we were gone. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of moving parts. <laughs> and we kept adding more because the the final thing was that we really wanted our friend Tara, who I've talked about on the podcast briefly before, to be at our wedding. She officiated our wedding for us. Right. She went to NYU, but her student housing ended in April. And so what we decided to do was instead of her going back to her family in Oregon and us seeing her again when the next school year started, we really wanted her to stay and be able to be there for the wedding, but she couldn't afford to rent an apartment in New York just for that. So she stayed with us. She stayed on our air mattress in the living room for a month, Yeah. starting in late April through to late May. So we were getting together a small wedding. We were planning our international summer trip. We were subleasing our apartment. And I was preparing to take my law school finals while we had a house guest. Yeah, it was it was a lot. For a lot of reasons, actually mostly unrelated to all of the other moving parts that were going on. We were planning a pretty small wedding. We didn't really want a big to-do. Right. <laughs> um, we also couldn't really afford a big to-do. But I think even if we could have, we weren't really into that at that point. So we had... We, we were planning everything. It was it was um, moving further into focus as time marched on. Things did march on and they were going really smoothly, like you said, getting more into focus. In mid-May, I had four law school finals that I had to take. And then I was also going to write a packet to apply for the law review. Right. So Tara was staying with us. I took the first two of my law school finals and um, My third one, the criminal law final, was the morning of May 11th. And then two days after that, I was going to take my torts final. And then we had a few days before we got married and left the country. Yeah. And it's funny. You you remember that date really specifically for a final exam in grad school, like, years ago? Um, So the early, early morning of May 11th. About, like, 5 a.m.? That sounds about right. My phone rang. And, you know, I sleep without hearing aids, but it eventually woke me up, probably because it woke you up and you were pissed because you had a final that day, (laughs) understandably. And so I answered my phone and it was a nurse from the Columbia Transplant Office. And it had that feeling of formality as they were calling me by my full name and then immediately went into verification questions. You know, is this your birth date? Okay, can you verify your phone number that this is the number I called at you? Is this your primary number? Okay, and this is your address. 
and you still have this insurance and this insurance, which was a new question, not one that you usually get asked at five in the morning. And I said, yes. And I was asleep and I just put hearing aids in. I was confused. So then she said, um, so a kidney has become available and it's a high risk kidney, but it's a really good match for you. And we think you should take it. And any other time that I got this news, I would have said, I'll be there in half an hour. But it was 5 a.m. and I had my head full of apartments I was looking to rent and times I was going to dialyze and I think even bus schedules in Sydney and a wedding that was coming up in about a week. And I said, um, I need to think about it. Let me call you back. And she went, oh, okay. But really soon, this is important. And I was like, oh, no, of course. Of course. I'll call you back. And I hung up the phone. And um, I woke you up. I was already up. Right. But I pretended I was going to wake you up. And I apologized because I knew we were in the middle of finals and I knew how important and stressful and intense they were because law school is an actual enforced curve. Only so many people can get a high grade. Um, it's not like when they used to say, oh, we're grading this on a curve when I was in junior high, which meant everybody got better grades. No, this was like a serious bell curve and it was scary. And I said, so that was the transplant office. They have a kidney for me, but it's high risk. And we're about to get married and go to Australia. I kind of feel like no. And I said that in that leading way, like, you're going to agree with me because this is the obvious. I did not agree with you at all. <laughs> no, you did not. And I feel like this moment is a testament to a lot of things about the two of us that sometimes I can get nervous in the moment and shy away from taking a leap. And... In those times, since I have known you or since I've been with you, you have been the person to say, you got it, do it. You're very successful at that with me. <laughs> and it's always the right thing. You know, we, there may be little times with smaller health things where maybe I push myself a little bit too much. But this was not that time. This was a time where I went like, oh, man, but bus schedules. And you said, but kidney. And I immediately went, oh, right, of course. And I'm not sure I even had time to call them back because they called me. They called you back immediately. immediately. I was telling you, you have to do this. You have to take right. the Right, we were in the middle of talking about it. And I, I think I was expressing my nervousness while realizing you were right. And, and I want to say, you weren't just tired and brain-addled. One of the things you said to me, and this is a thing I really felt at the time, too, is... One of the things I think that doesn't show up in a lot of stories about transplantation, but you had two kidneys that failed after a year. Yeah, two years. And sometimes they can just do the transplant, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. The kidney never works in the body. It just doesn't like start up inside you. Right. And you were saying, I don't want to go through all this. I don't want to go through major surgery. I don't want to definitely take away the trip to Australia and the summer job and your finals and potentially us getting married to just have surgery and have a kidney that doesn't work. Right. And you were pretty emotional about that. Yeah. And you were also worried about the high risk 
element because that was a thing that you had signed forms for. Yes, sure, of course. In the moment <laughs> a year ago when we were never going to get any kidney. Yeah. What did they tell you on the phone about the high risk? Initially, not a ton, which was appropriate because of HIPAA and everything else. But they also had to disclose what made it a high-risk kidney. And in this case, the young man who had died and whose family was donating his organs um, had died of an overdose from IV drug use. And so there were risks based mostly in the possibility of shared needles. So bloodborne things, including all the variations of hepatitis, um, HIV, and those are the two big things that they worry about, but um, other, other things as well. And they said, you know, it's been tested. All those things are negative. Obviously, we wouldn't be offering it if they weren't. But it's still high risk because sometimes those things don't show up in initial tests. So, and I don't even think they said if you take this kidney. When you take this kidney, we will do extra batteries of tests regularly to make sure that you're clean, that you don't have any of these these things that are possibilities. Right. This is something that you probably, if you're a listener, learned about in sex ed class, if you had good sex mm -hmm. ed, which is that when you get tested for diseases like HIV and you are negative, you need to wait. There's a three-month window mm -hmm. where you need to get tested again because it takes some time for those things to show up in a test. Right. And this is something that I want to say about high-risk organs because we talked a little bit about this in the earlier episode when we talked about signing up for them. But high-risk organs are just organs that you know are high-risk. <laughs> yeah. You could get an organ donated from a person who died who was not categorized as high-risk but the night before, unbeknownst to anybody, they engaged in high-risk behavior. They could have done lots of things that could have yeah. put them and that organ at risk. And so I think a lot of times with things like testing windows, with behaviors you know about versus behaviors you don't, it's good to point out that there are lots of things you don't know. And just because some things are categorized as high-risk doesn't mean everything that doesn't fall in that category is 100% safe and 100% fine. Yeah. It's important to remember that. Yeah, it really is. So I was understandably nervous when I was talking to you. And all of this was also, again, in the context where you had a giant test coming up in several hours. And that was what our household had been about for not just that week, but for the week before. Like, oh my God, the world is going to end if I don't know this and 17 other things that go deeper than this about every single possible little instance and it's all higher order thinking and it's insane and I was focused on doing my best to sort of stay out of your way and offer you the support you needed for your success um, Tara was focused on that also we were kind of we weren't like living around you but all of our lives were kind of like let's get Lara through this let's be support system and in the midst of that here was this sort of transplant bomb and it shouldn't be it should be like yay and instead it was like ooh, I don't know and this what's about what's with the timing and it was in that context where I was thinking this thing that we've been waiting for for a long time is now actually coming at like this weird wrong time my greatest fears of my health interfering with somebody else's goodness or happiness or anything else. It's, it's happening right now. This is that time when like, no, 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 I don't want this. 
Couldn't this have happened in a week? Couldn't this have happened four months ago? Could this have happened any other time? Of course I want this. Of course I do, but not today. And you were really great in saying, who cares? Stop being ridiculous. Yeah, stop being ridiculous. That is one of your great abilities. And so, um, as we began to say a while ago, while we were discussing this and I was realizing I'm being ridiculous, my nurse called back and she seemed, she's an extremely calm person. But she seemed a little bit urgent. I was going to say frantic, but like a little urgent. And she said, I've spoken with your doctor and with your other doctor, and we've looked at the test results, and we've looked at the cross-matching, and we've looked at all of the, the different things we can look at, and this is a really good match for you, Mr. Deckard. We really think you should take this organ. Your doctor thinks you must take this. You really should do this. What are you going to do? You should do this. And it was a very hard sell, which I, you know, I appreciate. And I was embarrassed. I said, um, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to say yes. And I explained a little bit. I said, listen, I'm supposed to get married in a week and a half. There's all this other stuff going on. I apologize for my hesitation. Just like there's a lot of stuff going on. And she was like, oh, congratulations. So you need to be in the hospital in an hour. <laughs> and so that was what that day was about, not surprisingly. Right. You got off the phone and we had our marching orders. We had to get you to the hospital to prep for surgery in an hour, mm -hmm. which meant I don't remember what I did first, but I think what I did first was, oh, I've got to go into our living room and wake up Tara early in the morning <laughs> and tell her what's happening. You were in our bedroom. You were getting dressed. You were gathering all the things you were going to need to get to the hospital. And I walked into the living room and in my head, this was so logical. I was going to lay it out. Here, they, we got the call. He's going to get a transplant. I'm going to need to call and cancel my test. Right. Then I'm going to need to call and unsublease the apartment that I signed a contract for. <laughs> then I'm going to need to call the people in Australia to tell them I can't take their job because right. I'm going to be unemployed this summer. And what happened was I sat down and I started telling Tara that we got the call and I just started crying and crying and crying and crying. And Tara was amazing. Yeah. You know, she is a very talented and well-trained actress. And I think in that moment, she just acted like this was a normal situation and she was talking to a person who had all their act together. Right. She's also, even at that time, an experienced director and stage manager. And so like you in moments of crisis goes, what do we need to do? When do we need to do it? As opposed to, ah, like Hermit the Frog. And so... <laughs> right. So I was telling her all this and she said, okay, what do I need to bring? Where do we need to leave? Are we taking a cab or are we taking the subway? It was lots of very precise, easy to answer questions while I got all my tears and blubbering together. Mm -hmm. And we packed up. I called Columbia and said, I can't take the final exam today. My husband's getting a kidney transplant. And they said, oh, okay, that is a valid excuse. <laughs> you can take the test tomorrow. So generous. Yeah, it was, Law School. it was really generous. They gave me a day for your major surgery. And the three of us got all your stuff together and packed ourselves in a cab and went up to Columbia Presbyterian to get you a kidney. Yeah, we did. <laughs> that, too, was a classic hurry up and wait situation, not surprisingly. I think that I actually didn't go into surgery until late afternoon or even evening. Is that right? It was afternoon-ish. It was like, like late late morning. It was lots of waiting. And I should also say psychologically, 
because of the experience we had in Seattle, where we'd gotten that call and you were one of two people and then you didn't get the organ. Yeah. In my mind, there was a emotional block that said, Ari's not actually going to get this kidney today. Mm-hmm. At the last minute, something will happen and it won't be right or someone else will need it or some some other surprise will happen and we'll just go home and you'll take your test tomorrow and dialysis will happen mm-hmm. and this will all have been a crazy thing for not. And that was what I was prepared for the whole time. Here we are at the hospital, but this is not actually happening. Right. I had a little bit of that too. I mean, even when I was in a hospital gown, in a hospital bed with an IV in my arm, I was like, yeah, but, you know, you can take an IV out. And I was pretty sure it was going to happen, but the whole thing felt surreal because all of these things that we had been planning and talking about and thinking about and worrying about and dealing with for months, everything we'd been aiming towards was suddenly sort of up in the air. And it I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to have a transplant. And then what? I don't know. But none of that happened. Um, we just, the surgery, they eventually came and got me. And I had met with the surgeon, that same guy from from the fall. And I had met with the guy who is now still my doctor, my transplant nephrologist, and met with the anesthesiologist. And at some point, we called my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were still both at work at school. And I remember, because your mom's in the library, that was pretty easy. There's a phone. You can get her. Mm-hmm. But your dad yeah. was teaching out in the building. Yes. And so we had to call the main office. Like, oh, Glenn, he's out and about. Maybe he'll call you at lunch. And it was one of those things where I had to say, he needs to call now. We need, right. to, we need to talk to him. You need to call him down. And I don't want him to be freaked out or scared. But he needs to get here so he can talk to Ari before Ari goes into surgery, which yes. is happening in the next half hour. <laughs> yes. My father until he retired, was an elementary English as a second language teacher. And there was a time period where he taught from a cart, which meant that he was sort of a traveling teacher. He did not have his own classroom. His materials were all on a cart. And he went from room to room like a little peddler, peddling his (laughs) ESL wares for all the kids who needed uh, help learning English So finding him was actually difficult. Somebody had to sort of find his teaching schedule and maybe page that room, and it was a bit of a challenge. Plus, if you're a teacher, you can't just be like, hang on, let me step away from my desk. You are legally in charge of up to, say, 30, in his case, small children, (laughs) who you can't just be like, kids, just hang tight. You'll be cool, right? Don't get into anything, and then go off to the office. It's a bit of a a thing to get a hold of him, Um, but you did. And so, you know, you talk to them, I talk to them, and it was also one of those things where like, so this giant thing's going to happen, and we'll let you know. It it was a little bit of a weird day. Um, I remember that my parents said, oh, we'll fly out, and we were like, well, you're going to be here in a week and a half. You already got plane tickets for the wedding. (laughs) Don't change that. And then the question was like, well, what are we going to do about that? And we're like, okay, so we are going to deal with that, but one thing at a time... And that's not to, you know, put a some kind of weird thing on my parents. Of no, course. everybody I called asked me about that. And yeah. I said, the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> we'll know in a couple of days. <laughs> and I think the funny thing was, because that was really on our minds, we told all the doctors too. And so we were getting like 
two conversations. One was, okay, so you're about to have a transplant, and that means the following 400 things. And also, hey, congratulations! That's so exciting! They came and got me and wheeled me down the hall and, um, you know, had me count down from 100. So I got to 97 or whatever, and then I woke up in the middle of the night, and I still had, like, a tube down my throat, and I had all kinds of monitors on my body, and many, many, many medications coursing through me. For some reason, that time waking up was one of the more confusing and scary moments that I've had post-surgery. I've had a lot of post-surgery moments, and I'm not sure why that was. I think I've not ever woken up intubated before. They wheeled me to my room, and I fell back asleep, and I saw you in the morning. Right, so I'll fill in some gaps here. <laughs> yeah. They wheeled you away. They were giving you anesthesia. Tara and I went and waited in the surgery waiting room, and I just made tons of calls. Mm. I After we called your parents, I think your mom especially took care of contacting everybody else for me. Right. But there were several people who were either very emotional or excited or concerned and called me to get the latest updates. Yeah. Even though the thing is, when somebody wheels your loved one in for surgery for a transplant like that, there are no updates. And it's um, about a six-hour surgery. It yeah. took a very long time. And so I, I talked to a lot of family members and friends. I had to call, like I said, the um, the people who were supposed to sublease our apartment and tell them, we can't give it to you. I already knew at that point, you're going to come home and it's several months of convalescence to recover from surgery. You got to stay in because you're on huge amounts of immunosuppressants at the time. You you could get sick from anything. There's no travel in our future. Right. I called the jobs office at Columbia that had helped me get the Australia gig and said, not only can I not do that, but we really should think about how I'm going to be employed this summer <laughs> at all with, you know, a week to go before everybody's supposed to start their jobs. Mm hmm. And everybody, of course, was so incredibly understanding. And I was kind of in a wholly different reality. Yeah. So in a way, I was sort of surprised. You know, I'm telling people, hey, that apartment we subleased to you and contractually signed over to you for these dates, I can't give it to you because of this reason. And they immediately said, oh, my gosh, of course, we'll find someplace else, you know. And I can't imagine that's throwing their life into chaos quite a bit at the yeah. very last minute. They just were so understanding and sweet. Mm -hmm. And the people at the Columbia Public Interest Internship Office said, don't worry about it. Take care of him. We will get you a job in New York that you can do, and it'll be okay. And they did. Yeah, Within which is insane because the, the process of applying for the Australia gig was like six months long, if I remember correctly. Right. They got me a job in the immigration unit at Legal Aid. Mm -hmm. They had found out that someone else who had had a job there, I think, couldn't do it for some reason, or they lost one person, or maybe they just told me that to make me feel better, but they slotted me right in. <laughs> right. Everybody was incredible, and the one thing was they, they did only give me a day to take the crim law exam. So I staggered home, I think at about 3 a.m. that night, mm -hmm. and fell asleep. You still hadn't woken up from surgery as far as I knew. They'd let me go in and see you, you were unconscious, you had the tube still in there breathing for you. And they said it would take even as much as a day for you to wake up. Right. So I woke up the next morning. I went to the tiny makeup room for this criminal law exam. That whole thing was a blur. Yeah. I remember I got home and I saw the big law review writing packet on my desk. 
and I just threw it in the garbage and went to go see you at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I've got to say, Tara, she took such good care of me during that time in the surgery waiting room. She brought her laptop and a bunch of DVDs, and I think she played me some Kenneth Branagh movies Mm -hmm. while we waited for you to recover. She woke up early while I was in the exam and went and sat in the hospital room with you because I really wanted somebody to be there when you woke up. She was amazing, and she took incredible care of both of us during that insanely crazy time. Yeah, and I think that probably I woke up that night probably within half an hour or an hour after you left before falling back asleep. And then I woke up very late the next day. And um, the doctors were there and you were there. And they were, concerned is not the right word, but they were looking at, they were looking for urine output, which is always the really important part of a kidney transplant. Because I had not peed in years at that point. Dialysis had been doing it for me, basically. And so once a kidney starts working, it starts making urine. And I was not yet. And that was because of a thing that is a known phenomena in kidney transplants, and I maybe other transplants as well, but in this case it's called sleepy kidney. And it's where they install an organ and they attach blood supplies to it and ureters and they connect it to everything and it's all ready to work. But it's like still in shock from having been removed. And so it takes a little while to kind of reboot as if it was a digital thing. But it takes a little while to kind of actually start working, even though it has blood supply going to it. And sleepy kidney can take a few hours, a day, a week. I think in some rare cases, more than a week. And occasionally, basically never to recover. And this became the new it's never going to happen thing for both of us, I think, psychologically. You know, we've gone to the hospital thinking at the last minute, the rug's going to get pulled out and we're not going to get this kidney. Mm -hmm. But you did get the kidney. Right. And now we're both sitting there thinking it's never going to start working. Right. We'll have done all this and all this and yeah, it won't it won't work. So they came and checked on me. Fairly often, not just the doctors, but nurses were checking all the time. And, you know, the thing was, because that was a known issue, in between you attempting to do your last minute studying and like real studying for your last final or two, you was, you were sitting there right by the urine bag. And, you know, it's really easy to kind of keep glancing down and notice it's still empty. Right. You had a catheter mm-hmm. in and a plastic container at the foot of your bed. And I have never stared so intently at such a device, <laughs> thinking, please, let there be pee coming through that tube. Right. <laughs> it felt to me, and I've never had sleepy kidney before this, but it felt to me like my team felt this same kind of urgency. Like, we pulled him out of this situation and maybe made things worse that's only worth it if this works. And so they were really trying a lot of things. And they were doing the professional doctor kind of thing where yeah. they're not telling you, we're freaked out, but they stopped by your room so often. Like, hey, everything's fine. By the way, is he peeing yet? Okay, no, great. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Everything's fine. They didn't actually say it that way. That would have been very panicking. They had better poker faces than that, but especially because we were both nervous, you get that sense. Yes. So they tried several things. 
But two main things that they did, they pushed IV fluids for me. So I was getting, I don't know, a lot of saline through these bags. Um, not just the usual little drip, 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 but like drip, 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 drip. Like it was really, really fast and a lot of fluid was coming in. And they were also giving me diuretics, which are intended to stimulate the kidney to produce urine. But you don't want to give somebody too many diuretics because I actually don't remember why now that I started to say that. But they didn't want to give too much. And so I was having a ton of fluid pumped into me to the point where, like, I started to actually swell up. Yeah, you looked really puffy. Yeah, which is weird because that's a really typical kidney patient dialysis thing that I had almost never, ever had. It's an extremely common physical symptom, especially for, I was going to say your average, but a certain subset of dialysis patients who don't really follow fluid and sodium restrictions that well. I tended to follow them very well, and so I did not have, like, puffy ankles or a puffy face or really, really swollen body parts due to fluid retention. But in the hospital for those few days, I really did, and it was uncomfortable. <laughs> there was actually another thing that they tried. It wasn't directly related to this, but it was necessary, which was that at that point... I had not been on dialysis for a little bit, and I didn't have a working kidney. And so to keep me healthy, they needed me to have dialysis, help get rid of some of the fluid, to help keep my body healthy. So I went to this in-hospital dialysis unit, actually a number of times. And that felt like, at the time, such a defeat. It really did. That your kidney didn't start working and you had to be on dialysis even though they'd done a transplant. Yeah, and it had to be in-center dialysis too. Yeah, it just, it was so deflating and it felt like this confirmation, oh, this is never going to work. Yeah. We just went through all this and he's going to have to stay on dialysis. Yeah, it was it was terrifying. And it was not made better by the actual situation in that unit. And I really don't know what was going on. And it's very hard to tell because I'm still recovering from major surgery. So I was on very serious, like, Schedule 1 pain meds and all kinds of other things. You are on massive doses of immunosuppressants, which at regular maintenance levels are not mind-altering, but at higher levels are the kind of thing that can kind of influence some of your thinking a little bit or interfere with. But most of the times that I went to that unit were really, really late at night, super early in the morning kind of thing. Like maybe I had a shift that started at midnight. And so a lot of the lights were off because it was mostly patients who were basically asleep. But it was an extremely large area and everybody was really packed in. The lights, like I said, were mostly off. But my memory of it was like, it was almost a video game level with, like, flickering neon lights. I remember the flickering fluorescent lights, too. Which is not, I guess, their fault, really. But it felt like my horror about the situation externalized. Yeah, because, you know, that's a trope. It felt a little bit horror movie or a little bit video game setting. And it wasn't helped by the fact that there was some kind of serious dysfunction among some of the staff. And as a patient, you shouldn't know that. <laughs> but there was like shouting and silent treatments and stuff that was very clearly going on. 
Yeah. Sometimes. And it was really odd. And I, I think for most of the patients, they were just really out of it. And it, like, it didn't matter because they were getting care. Like, care was occurring. And I basically got the care I needed for that. It was at a fairly minimal level. And I feel really bad being critical because my life was being saved actively that whole time. But it was a really scary situation already. You know, here we were thinking this thing that we needed to do, it's just, it's yet another step of, well, this doesn't, this isn't working. This is such a, a failure. And then to be in this situation that was like actually scary a little bit anyway, really amped that up because we were really feeling that in that moment. I think I went to that unit maybe no more than five times because I went actually more than once a day a couple of times. That was just like this yet another little step that was like, oh no. And I should say, like, we're talking about this in real detail because when something like this is going on, every hour is a new day almost. Like, time really slows down and everything is viewed really microscopically. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That, you know, I've said many times, and I'm pretty sure I've done so on the podcast, that one of the things about having chronic disease, especially like I have, is that basically everything's fine until it's not. And here was a time where it was fine, but it was not. A thing was happening. And because we were in the middle of an event, everything was about that. And so you, there was this feeling of time dilation. There was a feeling of obviously amped up emotions, and those two play on one another quite a bit. And so even though I usually don't remember a lot of stuff post-surgery, and I still don't very clearly here, I also like have a lot of little memories from probably just, just little flashes of things from probably like, here's this one five minutes, but it was a really important five minutes. So I was receiving a lot of extra fluid that then they were trying to dialyze off and also use diuretics. I was having diuretics to attempt to help the kidney get started. And they were giving me dialysis, which I needed to stay healthy and dialyzed and also to kind of maybe lighten the burden on the kidney so it wasn't like, there's just too much to do, I couldn't possibly, which is sort of how they explained it to me. And after almost two days, it worked. I started to produce urine. And once that started, it wasn't like, oh, a little bit and then a little bit more. As I recall, once it started, it was like, and here it all is. We're just going. It was just the bag was filling up over and over and over and over again. And some of that was because they had been pushing fluids and giving me diuretics. But the doctors were so stoked. And they were not more stoked than me. And they were not more stoked than you. But they were so, so excited. Everybody was thrilled. We were so happy. It was, it was such a relief. And it just felt like... This thing that emotionally I had been thinking the whole time, this won't happen. This can't happen. You are prepared for defeat. Yeah. You're prepared for no. And I was kind of not prepared for it to work. <laughs> like all of a sudden in that moment, urine is happening and our whole life has changed. Right. Oh, this is happening. This is working. We're okay. We're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Our whole reality has changed. You are a person with a working kidney again. Yeah. And I should say, too, that this was my first time having a transplant from someone who's not related to me. And the experience was different in a lot of ways, obviously. But one of the notable ways in which it was different is that in the past, I had gotten a private double room with my donor. 
And that obviously wasn't going to be the case here. And so I was in this extremely large six to eight person room with lots of curtains dividing our little spaces, but we were all kind of arranged in a circle and we had all just had transplants. And I'm not sure if they were all kidney transplants, but I think they were. I think one guy was a liver. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Throughout the time that I was in that room, several people graduated out to a more private room or to go home, and immediately, within hours, somebody else was in that spot. And it was constantly full of people like, yeah, you just got a transplant. So there was like family members coming in with balloons and people coming in going, oh my goodness, are you going to be okay? Oh, I'm so glad it's been so long and you know now you're going to live and real things and really, really real life moments happening 10 feet away from somebody else who's peeing in, you know, through a catheter because we're all there. And that was, you know, that was intense and also low key at the same time. Right. It was joyous and routine. Yeah, constantly. Eventually, I was moved to a more private room. It was a double with somebody else who had also had a transplant, but that was nice to get out of the slightly more chaos of, we all had a transplant. And then they started talking about, when can we send you home? And we were starting to say, uh, so we'd like to go home. And I had said, like, listen, I don't want to be a problem. I don't want to go home before I'm ready. But I do have a wedding. We have a wedding that we're trying to do here at that point in five days. And this is a thing where family members had plane tickets and hotel reservations to come out to see us. Yes. And a lot of people were saying, is he going to be out of the hospital? Are you actually going to get married? And I said, honestly, I don't know. It depends on what the doctors and nurses say. He needs to stay there till he's recovered. That's the most important thing. Yeah. And so there was this kind of attitude. Maybe we'll get married in five days. Or maybe he'll just have a lot more visitors than we anticipated to come and see him through his recovery. And I remember, I think, one of your parents saying, well, you could always just get married in the hospital. Right. And Ari, you are so go with the flow. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a thing that has really benefited you a lot during (laughs) these chaotic periods with your health. You know, you're very calm and patient and easygoing. Mm -hmm. But someone suggested that and you got that brick wall. No. I am not getting married in a hospital. Mm -hmm. That was really important to me. I really, really, really wanted to get married to you. And there was a part of me that's like, I don't care where. But the other thing that was probably more important to me was about sort of self-definition that I had never wanted and still don't want my health to impinge on the rest of my life. I want it as quarantined as possible. And in this case... It was almost impossible to quarantine, but I did not want the start of our new life together to be intertwined or wrapped up in, or I think even at the time I might have been thinking tainted by my kidney stuff, by Alport syndrome, by all of my health problems. I wanted it to be as separate as possible. It's not separate. It can't be. It's part of our lives together. It was part of our lives together then, as I think our story here makes incredibly clear. But there was something about just the optics and the feel of that that I just could not stand at all. I was willing to delay that wedding, which I really, really, really wanted 
if it meant that we could do it more like what we wanted it to be, or at least not in the hospital. Well, and so then over the next three days came all these nurses who were very invested in, I guess, the the romance of oh, this, yes. of the wedding coming up, because people like weddings. Yeah, you, yeah, they're a little bit popular. <laughs> so it started to be just this constant, every person on every shift mm-hmm. on the nursing team would come in and say, I told the doctor, I went in, I'm, I'm the one, I'm looking out for you, I'm making sure he knows you've got to get out of this hospital by May 22nd <laughs> so you can get married. Every single person had appointed themselves the one. That's right. Who was going to make sure <laughs> that you got out of the hospital. Yeah, we had a, a real parade of heroes over the, the, those couple of days. And the funny thing is, you know, when, when you're going to be released from the hospital, it's always one doctor that has to say, it's okay. And so it was my doctor. And for some reason, he was like absent. And I don't remember what it was. I don't think we ever even knew. It was because we'd been seeing him super regularly. And then suddenly it was like, this deadline is coming up and I really need to be somewhere if I can. And everybody keeps telling me, oh, I am talking to him. And he was nowhere to be found. And so it was like a day and a half after I had seen him, which was very unusual. And he wandered in all calmly. And he's an extremely calm guy, which is really nice. And he came in and he starts checking on some things. He does a physical exam. Okay, so what's going on? What's going on? Okay, and your urine output's really good. All right, excellent. And then he sort of paused and he said, so are you getting married? (laughs) Which was totally his dry sense of humor. And if I hadn't known him just well enough at that point, I would have been like, yeah, ah. But I did know. And so (laughs) I was kind of nervous because I didn't, I didn't want to pressure him into making a medical decision based on non-medical factors because the medical factors were the important thing to me there. The wedding was almost as important, but really it was important to me that, you know, the right thing happened for my health. And so I said, yeah, it's supposed to be the 24th, which was Sunday, and this was Thursday. And so will it be possible for me to get out to go do this? And he said, he sort of paused. And kind of clearly pretended to look thoughtful. And then he said something like, Yeah, all right. I guess we could do that. He really milked it. He did. He likes doing that sometimes. Um, He's a terrific doctor who's one of my favorite doctors that I've ever had. And so then we started talking about what the plan was going forward. One of the things was I was going to need to dialyze at home at least once because they wanted me to make sure that I was really fully there. They were still concerned about the sleepy kidney. And the other thing was, even though I was going home, they wanted me to come in for clinic visit at least once. So I think I went home Thursday, dialyzed Thursday night, and then saw him again on Friday. Right. And then all of our friends and family arrived that day. Yeah. So like I saw him in the morning and then they arrived that evening and then we kind of saw them Saturday some more and then... Sunday was the wedding. And I remember there was a specific thing where on Friday, I went in and saw him and they had still continued to push a ton of fluids. And so I had done dialysis and it was the first time I'd done it for myself in over a week. And that was weird, but it worked and it was fine. And, you know, we talked about numbers and, and, and he was actually surprised that some things were going so well. And it was actually really good news because it turned out I was doing much better than they had been assuming I was. And he said, is there anything else? And I said, well, 
I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm still retaining a lot of water and I'm worried about fitting into my suit. <laughs> and I, I, I said, like, if I need to do something else, I can do something else. I'm sure I could figure that out, but is there anything we can do about that? And he sort of paused and kind of chuckled to himself and said, like, oh, yeah. And I was still taking a diuretic because, like I said, tons of fluid. And so he gave me permission for like two days to double or quadruple the dose, which was crazy. <laughs> um, so I did, which meant that by my estimation, I peed about 200 times over the next two days. I also lost over an inch, if not two inches on my waist back to like my normal size and squeezed into my suit for our wedding, which was on Sunday. Yeah, we got married in Central Park mm -hmm. up by the 100th Street Pool and Tara officiated. Yeah. We wrote our own vows. But when she got to the part about in, in <laughs> sickness and in health, everybody cracked up. Yeah. Which just goes to show that the secret to comedy is timing. <laughs> I'm really glad that we got to do it the way we wanted to do it, where we wanted to do it, and when we wanted to do it with all the people we wanted to do it with. It was really beautiful, too, that day. All the the petals were falling. It was amazing. And it just went off without a hitch. It was great. It was perfect. And I went in to see my doctor again on Tuesday, and some of my numbers were not where they were hoping they would be. And just as a precaution, they said, listen, let's just pretend you've been in the hospital this whole time and continue your hospital stay. So I checked back in for four-ish days mm -hmm. and just sort of pretended like, okay, here I am still post-transplant doing that as if I hadn't gone out into the world for about four days. Um, but that was very easy and low-key and really just sort of continuing to check on the progress of the kidney and getting rid of the extra fluid and balancing all the new meds I was on sort of again, which is a really important thing to do. And we did that. And then they said, okay, now you can go home for real. And so I did. And we did. And um, it changed our whole lives. It really did. It saved your life. We said goodbye to dialysis. And I'm so grateful to your doctors Mm -hmm. to your nurses, to your surgeon, to that whole team, to your donor yeah, and your donor's family who did this incredible, wonderful thing and gave you this gift, gave us this gift. Yeah. And in some future episodes of the podcast, as we go forward, we're going to talk about all the things that you've done since then, since you got a kidney transplant. But I want to say, your donor, by giving you this gift, gave me a gift. Mm-hmm. It changed my whole life. It changed the lives of the family and friends who love you very much and love me. It changed the life of the people that you were later taught and your colleagues. And that donating a kidney is an act of kindness that does ripple outward. It doesn't just affect one person. It affects many, many people. And it's an act of kindness that goes out into the world and creates these chain reactions among people you will never meet or never know about. But it's incredibly important, and I will always, always be so grateful. Yeah, me too. I mean, I still see many of those doctors. I don't see those nurses because they're all hospital nurses. But um, 
I'm glad you you brought up the donor and the donor's family because you know nobody has to do anything, and they did. Um, and you know <laughs> this kidney, despite its sort of humble beginnings and our nervousness and all of the things we just talked about, of course it's been life changing, but it's continues to be because it's still working now and that's a lot longer than any kidney I have ever had has worked in fact it's longer than the other two kidneys combined have worked and I've gotten to do and experience so many things I like to think that I've gotten to help and support and build up and add to a lot of other people's lives during that time. I'm sure I've also had negative impacts sometimes too, but it's incredible. And it's 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 hard to talk about because it's too big. Yeah. Too big sort of to comprehend. It's mostly enormous for me, but it's also enormous for you and we're not islands. So I'm just like you said, I also am really really incredibly grateful every day that I have this working kidney and that everyone worked so hard for me to have the kidney, for me to have a working kidney. And um, it's just been a real gift. And how are you feeling today? Uh, better than last week. Still a little sick, still have a cough. I've been doing my best to get a lot of sleep. But you know, listening to some past episodes, I've been saying, oh, I'm a little sick for more than a month. And that sounds about right. We've entered that portion of the year, I think I was saying this to you, where I'm a little bit to somewhat to occasionally a lot sick in different ways for most of this part of the year, <laughs> from sometime in October-ish to sometime in May-ish, sometimes a little earlier. I am more or less sick, mostly pretty mildly, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was last year. Last year it was really bad. Been really trucking along and things are going really well. I'm so glad. And again, I'm so happy we got to tell this story. Yeah. And I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful to everybody for listening. <laughs> uh, if you want to listen to episodes of the Kidney Cast, they're available on iTunes and Stitcher and my website, lauramorris.com. L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S dot com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash kidneycast or Twitter at kidneycast. And if you want to send us an email with questions or comments, we are kidneycast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Ari. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite stories. And thank you again to everybody for listening. Mm -hmm.